Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Uh, yeah, that's right. It is uh, Halloween has passed us by. <sighs> and we are recording this on November 1st in anticipation of you, listener, hearing it on November 2nd. No question about it, Caroline. We are done another Halloween in the books. Yep, that's true. We had our first party in our new house. Mm-hmm. We potentially had a disappointing number of trick-or-treaters. <sighs> But we got great rave reviews from the trick-or-treaters we had. We'll, we'll do a little more Halloween roundup later. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also been, I think, doing pretty good with horror movies this uh, October. Yeah, definitely. Horror movies and Halloween movies. Carrie has a whole other list of Halloween movies that are not horror movies that we uh, we have to get through. Your Hocus is Pocus. Mm-hmm. Your, um, your Town's Halloween. Absolutely. Your Unders Wraps. Really, they're all Disney films, I <laughs> well. guess. Can't call them horror movies. So we got through uh, all of the essentials there. We watched Beetlejuice recently. And we also, Caroline, have been watching um, all of the Nightmare on Elm Street. That was our slasher of choice for the October month this year. Yeah, we sure have been watching a lot of them. Uh, Well, we've seen all of them. We haven't watched the remake yet, but we've watched uh, the rest of them. Mm -hmm. I didn't really, I wasn't really privy to Freddy vs. Jason. That was a you undertaking but i watched it a lot as a kid so yeah i had to refresh myself on freddy versus jason but you uh you fe- you felt you were already already brushed up yeah i mean i saw it in theaters um and i must have been like 12 or 13 when it came out um and i've, I've seen it a lot since it was the one that came out while i was young and very much into old horror movies so it's close to my heart, even though there's a lot of camp to it, I think. And you also sat out uh, Nightmare Part 2, which you missed a lot. I, I'd i seen enough. <laughs> <laughs> Just I didn't need to the... see the rest of them, to be honest. But um, 4 was a pleasant surprise. I hadn't seen that one in a very long time. 3 is always great to revisit. Well, 3 was always my favorite sequel. Um the fifth one wasn't as bad as I think it gets a rap for. It Just, was... Well, because we watched six right after it. It's so much worse. Agreed. Yeah. Because I think that actress is very good. Six has the... Alice. Yeah, the Alice actress is good. So she kind of ties it together. Um, but six is just so bad. Well, and five's, five's messier, but it's messy kind yes. of in a fun way. There's, there's several dream children involved. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and then you got the uh, the Wes Craven's new nightmare, which I didn't really like when it when I first saw it in middle school because it was so different. But now I appreciate it on a different level, especially as like a writer and a filmmaker. You know, you kind of have to think about what am I bringing into the world. Well, and the the meta take of it all before we were using that word really, and and uh, a couple years before we did Scream is kind of cool. Yeah, so if anyone's not familiar with the whole Nightmare on Elm Street saga... Well, uh, <laughs> this actually ties into the subject of our episode this week, Carrie. So so yeah, um, we all, I think, know the basic story. And I'll let you explain New Nightmare in just a moment. Mm-hmm. I think we all know the basic story. You've got Fred Krueger, the child murderer, mm-hmm. child molester. They don't say that. Yeah, it's weird how they really dance around that 
Depending on the movie, sometimes it seems more explicit than other times. But yeah, it was definitely something they had in mind. It's like we're watching him tear people apart. Like, you can't insinuate he's a rapist. Well, and I mean, yeah, Freddy vs. Jason, I think the first time we see him, he is licking the back of a little girl's photograph. So that, that feels, it feels like they know what's going on there. It's a post-millennium world. Uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, Fred Krueger, child murderer. Uh, is let off for his crimes on a technicality. There's a lot of talk about a warrant going unsigned. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the parents of Elm Street, you know, we're, we're protecting our kids, kind of lynch him, burn his house down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he burns to death. And a few years later, he comes back for revenge, murdering the you know remaining children of those parents by uh, coming into their dreams, mm-hmm. which is mostly an excuse for great, you know, low budget special effects. Well, I think that's why you really latched onto the series this time around is because of that sort of dream horror and a lot of like the the practical effects that they have in the films, but also that sort of dreamlike cosmic horror vibe to it. They're so cheap. And that first one has a spinning room in it. I mean, it's, you know, there, mm-hmm. there's really cool stuff going on right from the jump. And as the, you... the first one also has just long arms, Freddie. <laughs> Which <laughs> so, doesn't you know. look as, as clean. Yeah. <laughs> you don't like long arms, Freddie, huh? I mean, they're a little... Unless we're playing Red Rover, I'm not very intimidated. Oh, but do your new nightmare thing. What was your new nightmare point? Well, no, I was just saying, you know, some people might not have gotten that far in the series uh, with diminishing returns, you know, for each of the sequels. But Wes Craven's new nightmare is technically the seventh Freddy movie. And um, Wes Craven, as uh, many of you likely know, directed the first nightmare on Elm Street. And Freddy Krueger was kind of his... Creation. He wrote it as well. But then he left, which, you know, the second one and all the other, all of them are pretty crazy. Yeah. And so he was kind of coming back to, I think this was the early 90s. So it had been, I don't know, 15 years or so since the first one, and at least a decade. And so he was taking it in a different direction where, I mean, it, it, it was meta before we were really used to meta um, movies and things like that. Because Heather Langenkamp, the final girl from the first movie, plays herself playing Nancy in a yes. remake of, or, a, you know, a continuation of the movie. Yeah. And then, like, Freddy is, well, I mean, to, to me, it was very much like a tulpa, like we talked about with the Slenderman sort of um, meme coming to life. I think that's kind of what Wes Craven was inspired by, even though he didn't say Tulpa. He, his character, who the director of this movie plays the director of Nightmare on Elm Street, also Wes Craven, um, he's writing a new movie, and that's why all of this you know, murder starts happening in the quote-unquote real world. And so it's kind of like... He, and he has a whole scene where he's sort of reckoning with the fact that he brought this evil into the world by writing it. Um. You know, what's interesting is Freddy versus Jason, which you might have missed this, this uh, uh, subtext the last time you uh, watched it, but, but it also, be, and, and you didn't take the, the roller coaster ride with me this time, <laughs> um, also has a topo plot, because the whole thing is Freddy can't get into people's dreams anymore because people forgot about yes. him. And so he wants Jason Voorhees to do some murders on Elm Street so that a cop will just go like, I wonder if this was Freddy Krueger. And then when people hear about him, they'll start dreaming about him again. Yeah. So kind of speaking him back into existence. Yeah. It's Slenderman. And it made me think, and he look at the long arms, Carrie. He's a long skinny for sure. He's the original Slenderman. He has children kill for him in some of the movies. Mm-hmm. 
So there you go. Freddy Krueger, Slenderman. This Nightmare on Elm Street ties into a lot of what we've covered on the podcast already. Yeah, I think the the plot of the original and like the original story is very, very dark. I mean, you know, it's a horror movie. Of course, it's dark. But again, you have this child, specifically a child murderer, insinuated child molester. Most child murderers are. Right. And... um the, the parents lynch him, basically. But, you know, the things that the kids are dealing with, like, there's a, a mom who's, like, possibly a sex worker, or she's, like, she, she's got guys coming in, I and think it's she very just, tawdry. I think she just has a lot of boyfriends, yeah. Well, yeah, but the way it was presented was very tawdry, and then, you know, like... It, some of it's just very sad. You know, Nancy's mom has alcohol, is an alcoholic. Um, well, I mean, they all did burn that guy a couple of years back. Right. But, it, you know, it's it's much darker thematically than even you might assume just being a slasher movie. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I picked up, especially this time, a lot of satanic panic sort of vibes mm. to it. The kids aren't all right. The kids aren't all right. They're messing in the occult or whatever, you know, maybe trying to express what they're going through, but no one's listening. And then the Freddy character, I mean, I don't know how, I don't remember how much of this is explicitly said throughout the series, but in the remake. The word bitch, it said a lot. In the remake, he was, he worked at like the preschool or whatever. Oh yeah, that does not I don't think that comes up at all. Yeah. I don't know if that's like backstory they just never told or they just made that up for the remake. It was actually a very interesting twist on it because it really reminded me of the McMartin preschool thing. Um, And like, you know, was it a real accusation or was he falsely accused and everything? And this, you know, the, these movies came out right around the time of the, the height of the satanic panic. So I really caught that this time around. Yeah, I don't think we see Robert England out of the Freddy makeup, like as living Fred Krueger until, until like Freddy's dead, the final nightmare. Yeah, well, yeah, we see him as one of the hundred or thousand maniacs that um, rapes a nun. Yes. Uh, so, so Fred so Krueger's dad. Yeah, so whoever that is. And then he's adopted by Alice Cooper. Um, there's a lot going on in his backstory. But yeah, yeah, he's, he's you know, it's also sort of a metaphorical thing of like, when you have a nightmare, it you're often dreaming about what you fear or what you're stressed about. And this is that personified, but it could also kill you. Yeah, and I think three and four are where they really get into the things people are afraid of or things about people's personalities being. Yes. I'm the wizard these, master. Yeah. They're worked into these kind of bespoke nightmares. Yeah. That he kills Which them with. is very thoughtful, very cottage core of Freddy. Yeah. He's like, an, he's uh, the Etsy killer. Yeah. In a way. <laughs> the Etsy killer. Everything is bespoke. <laughs> um, Embroidered her to death. <laughs> he would. <laughs> he would. Uh, so there's a lot to startle you, Carrie. It's a spooky story. There's a lot startling about, a Nightmare on Elm Street. Startling. Yeah, but maybe the most startling thing about it is that Wes Craven says it was originally ripped straight from the headlines. Okay. And that is what we're going to talk about this week. Very nice. Um, you see, Wes Craven has said in interviews that he had read a newspaper article 
just before he started writing Nightmare, um, about three young boys. In this newspaper article, there were three young boys. They were all Cambodian immigrants, and they had been depriving themselves of sleep because they were afraid of being... They were telling their parents they were going to be killed by a monster in their dreams when they went to sleep. This happened in America, but they immigrated from Cambodia? Yeah. Okay. And the thing is, then those kids went to sleep and they did wake up screaming and die of sudden heart attacks. And they were like young people. Okay. So Wes Craven, this is a quote from Wes Craven in a Vulture interview about one of the boys. Uh, When he finally fell asleep, his parents thought the crisis was over. Then they heard screams in the middle of the night. By the time they got to him, he was dead. He died in the middle of this nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. Now, those boys weren't the only ones, because across the country at this time, hundreds of Southeast Asian immigrants would die suddenly in their sleep. Really? And it wasn't really noticed until the late 70s and early 80s. Most of these were young males, and many of them had reported being terrified to go to sleep before it happened. Hmm. So that is, I mean, of course you base a horror movie on that, right? That's, a, yeah. as I said, startling. Yeah, you gotta, f- I mean, I'm sure you're going to give me some theories, if not answers. You gotta think it's either some sort of mass hysteria, or there's something common to their background. You know, whether they all ingested the same drug or consumed the same whatever or were exposed to whatever um, that made them all suffer from this. But obviously they didn't all know each other. It was across the country. No, Carrie, not all immigrants know each other. Okay. My mother was an immigrant. I'm not being immigrantist. Um, Now, I don't think this was the same article that Craven was talking about, but uh, a New York Times article from 1981 that I found was certainly noticing a pattern around this like same phenomenon. The Federal Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta is conducting an intensive inquiry into the manner in which 18 apparently healthy Laotian refugees died mysteriously in their sleep in this country within the last four years. One possibility being explored is that they were frightened to death by nightmares. The 17 men and a woman were members of a pre-literate Laotian mountain society called the Hmong. About 35,000 Hmong are now living in the United States. Most of them fled their homeland after it was overrun in 1975 by the path at Lao. So obviously they have really terrifying things to dream of, I'm sure, but... That's what we'll get into in a second, but I I think it's the Pathet Lao, so sorry. Okay. Jeez, Sean. Now who's being immigrantist? But, um... Hmm. I don't know. I mean, you would think that it would be much more common to die from fright from a nightmare because I've, I've had some whoppers, right? And, and I've woken here. up terrified. I've woken up crying, but I haven't had a heart attack. I have sat bolt upright in bed. You know, as a kid, I sat bolt up, bolt upright in bed, yelling from a, a nightmare yeah. before. Um, but no, yeah, I haven't. I haven't died. And of course, by the way, I, I think this probably was even if you haven't seen Nightmare on Elm Street. It was probably clear from our description, but Freddy kills you in your dreams. And so if you die in the Freddy dream, you die in real life, and then people just start seeing blood shooting out of you. Yeah, it's not really as clean as a heart attack. You're you're often slashed to bits or turned into a bed geyser. Yeah, you, your um, waterbed has eaten you, and you're now inside of it, and it's clear. 
Yep. No one questions that. They're like, oh, he killed himself. Yeah. Well. Um, but you raise a good point, Carrie, about uh, these people having things to have nightmares about. Um, why do you suppose there were so many immigrants from Southeast Asia, various Southeast Asian countries, suddenly in the U.S. in the early 1980s? Because they were fleeing. Because they were fleeing from the results, effectively, of our proxy wars with the Soviet Union. Um, because the Vietnam War was being fought right alongside civil wars in Laos and Cambodia. Right, the killing fields and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So after the end of Vietnam in 1975, and the Cambodian Civil War, and the Laotian Civil War, they were all very interrelated conflicts, and they all ended in 1975. Mm -hmm. And all of them ended with a pretty brutal communist regime taking control in those small Asian countries. Yeah. And so more than 2 million refugees from Southeast Asia were relocated uh, to the U.S. in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. And the things they were leaving behind, the things that all of these men and women and children had seen, are like really right up. The, we talk sometimes about like, well, where in history would you never want to be? And it's like USS Indianapolis. It's the Battle of Canny. Um, we ran across one recently that was really... Unit 731, Unit World War II. Unit 731, um, obviously, yes, uh, obviously and the concentration camps. Pretty, yeah, World pretty War much II. anything. Anywhere in, in World War II. But yeah, especially the genocidal areas and any, oh. anywhere there's a genocide. British, British uh, prison ship in the East River in yes. 1776 uh, was a bad one. Yeah, but certainly Laos and Cambodia, if you're on the wrong side of everything. Yeah, this is right up there with that list. Mm -hmm. Um the United States dropped more bombs on Laos during the so-called secret war that we were waging there. That's what it's called by CIA, CIA operatives and stuff who did this back in the day. Mm -hmm. The secret war in Laos. Um, the U.S. dropped more bombs on Laos than it did on Japan and Germany combined during the Second World War. Well, you got to think it was probably over a more extended period of time. Um, the secret war does not run the entire length of the Vietnam War. Definitely a long period of time, but not as long as you're thinking. Hmm. It's a lot. It's a lot of ordnance that they dropped just kind of willy-nilly to the point that there are still many, many unexploded bombs yeah. and mines, mines. Uh, you know, famously today that still injure and kill people. Mm-hmm. So after the Laotian Civil War, the Hmong people I mentioned of Laos. Uh, many of them had fought the communists with training and equipment from the CIA, because that's kind of what we were doing in the 70s. Yeah. And they were now, after having lost that war, brutally repressed and seen with suspicion, and basically as traitors by the powers that be. So initially there were some negotiations between the two kind of warring factions, and then those negotiations broke down, and the state newspaper on the front page announced that the Hmong people would be quote exterminated to the last root. God. Many of them were rounded up and uh, killed if they struggled, but, but ultimately relocated or sent to re-education camps, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. uh, many fled to Thailand and were put in probably more brutal um, concentration camps because the Thai government wasn't trying to deal with them or they were just sent back to Laos. Wow. Um, some fled to the jungles to eke out kind of an existence in these makeshift rural villages and settlements 
where I guess they still live to this day because the most recent Laotian government attacks on these communities was in 2021. They're still attacking them? Yeah. Listen, this is going to betray my ignorance, but are there still like communist regimes in place in all of these places? Um, I actually don't know if in Cambodia there, I know in Laos the same, I think the same group that took over back in the seventies. God. In Cambodia, the same people are not in place. And I think the government's changed hands a couple of times. It might be a monarchy, but I, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. The Khmer Rouge is no longer in charge. Well, that I know, but I mean, you know, the same party or whatever. Right. But at this time in Cambodia, uh, Pol Pot, was systematically murdering between 1.5 and 2 million Cambodians, about a quarter of the population of the country in the uh, couple of years that he ruled there, as they just, you know, this was less targeting ethnic groups. It was more any who, anyone who resists is kind of brutally killed or, or put into super brutal forced labor re-education camp type stuff. Um, Many of those executed in Cambodia were, as you mentioned, Carrie, taken to the famous killing fields. Yeah, we watched the film in uh, school, in my journalism film course, and God, it was harrowing. It was disturbing. And even our teacher had to like pause it a couple times because it was just a lot. Um, in college, yeah. Yeah, in college, school. yeah. So... Ugh, I, I can't imagine living it. In Killing Fields executions, a pickaxe was often used instead of a gun so they could save bullets. Ugh. But the Khmer Rouge were also apparently really fond of sawing off people's heads with these really sharp leaves from, um, I think, pa sugar palm plants. Mm. But you gotta think they're not that sharp. They're leaves. Well, let's find out. I have a quote here from a 25-year-old... <laughs> A 25-year-old, Carrie, uh, named Sangwan, I'm not going to get this name right because I don't, it's not my language, but a 25-year-old Sangwan Priap mm -hmm. was, a, was a former Khmer Rouge soldier in Cambodia who had fled them after about three months and, and gone and joined the refugees because he just couldn't take the brutality. Mm -hmm. And he told the Chicago Tribune... I was very frightened when I saw the Khmer Rouge saw off the neck of a civilian with the sharp edge of sugar palm leaves, said Priap, standing amid a cluster of refugees beside a row of flimsy huts. They spent three days cutting his head off, said Priap. They saw it a little one morning, and then in the evening, and finally the following day in the morning, and then in the evening, and finally the following day in the morning and night. They made the victim stand up while they were cutting in front of hundreds of people living in the Khmer Rouge area. Then they held him up when he could stand no longer. I had to join the Khmer Rouge army or they would have killed me, said Priap. Those who refuse to serve, they send to their deaths. They walk through villages telling people to follow them, and the people must obey. Another refugee, who fled here with his wife and nine children from an area some 50 miles to the east, said he had never personally witnessed any executions. They tied up people by putting both hands behind their back and telling them that they were sending them to the high command, said the refugee, Lok Peck. Whenever they did that... Then we knew the man would be sent to his death in the forests. It was a secret why they killed people, and nobody dared ask why. Jesus Christ, Sean. Three days. Three days of sawing this guy's head off. <sighs> I didn't think that this was where this episode would be going. 
No. Uh, well, that is the last of that real, very nightmarish reality that we're going to dip into. But I wanted to give you an idea of, because this was so prevalent in this immigrant group, I want to give you an idea of the kinds of nightmares they might be having. Sure. I mean, it's definitely not privileged you and me growing up in Connecticut nightmares. Um, you can see why some of these people might be afraid to go to sleep and afraid to see, to risk seeing some of these things again. God, I can't imagine. But um, still, nightmares can't kill you, Carrie. Can they? Well, I'm assuming if you have some sort of comorbidity or heart problem, maybe get, you know, a high enough heart rate or a bad enough jolt to the heart, but I can't imagine it happening to thousands and thousands of people. Well, we're going to look into the causes of these mysterious deaths and uh, maybe try to track down a culprit, Mr. Kruger or not, mm -hmm. after the break. All right. Bitch. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Welcome back. We're talking about people dying in their dreams. Carrie, uh, what do you think so far? Creepy story? You think you know what's going on yet? Well, we were talking about genocide, so it's not exactly a creepy story. It's more of like a just bone-chillingly horrific existential horror. Yeah, a real-world one. Yeah. But uh, but what about the people dying in their <laughs> nightmares? Is that creepy? Yeah, of course it is. Um there has to be some kind of link. It's interesting that it was mostly men. I would be curious as to if it was more refugees or more like ex-army people or, you know, people that were exposed to these things more. Just because women and children obviously endured a lot of the same horrors that the men did. But if it's not mostly men, if it's not women and children also dying at like similar rates. I'm just very, I don't know. Well, I want to return to that New York times article from 1981 that I started quoting the one that didn't probably inspire Wes Craven mm -hmm. for maybe a little bit more detail on what could be causing this. We didn't think anything mysterious was afoot until the third and fourth deaths happened very quickly. A doctor at the times interviewed said, but then we began to wonder. He said that his own search of the medical literature had disclosed the startling possibility that the four who died in St. Paul, all apparently healthy young men, might literally have been frightened to death. The syndrome is called bangungut, a Filipino word for nightmare, and is described in medical literature as nightmare death syndrome. The fatal affliction, Dr. McGee said, has been suggested as the cause of death in similar cases among young Filipino males between 30 and 40 years old. Hmm. Nightmare death syndrome? And so that 
doesn't necessarily have to do with like a exterior experience. Well, well, it has to do more with like ethnicity. Well, I don't know. Let's find out about these um, young Filipino men. Please. Because uh, a 1951 Time article that I tracked down describes uh, this outbreak or, you know, epidemic or series of deaths. When Nemesio Tutop, 37, went to bed in his quarters at a sugar plantation camp on the Hawaiian island of Oahu, he seemed to be in perfect health. Next morning, he was found dead, and there was not a mark of violence upon him. Last week, the Honolulu coroner's physician, Dr. Alvin V. Majoska, listed Tutop as the 43rd in a baffling succession of healthy young adults, all Filipinos, who have died in their sleep in the last six years for no discoverable reason. I mean, that's right out of an Elm Street movie, right? Yeah, and that also seems to include young women, too. It does. Some of them are women. Most of them are men. Um, And I, I do think they're mostly young because most of the victims slept in dormitories, and companions reported that they had gasped, groaned, coughed, or choked for a few minutes before they fell silent. None showed signs of food or other poisoning. No intestinal parasites have been found. The victims were not neurotic. The only clue? Many went to bed after a heavy meal, which might cause wild dreams. It has been suggested the terror conceivably could lead to a fatal reflex shock. After eliminating everything he could think of from alcoholism to witchcraft, (laughs) Dr. Majoska got one shred of evidence which supports the dream death theory. It came from the Philippines, where Tutop left a wife and four children. There, similar cases have been reported and called bangugut, implying that the victim died in a nightmare. So that's two references now to this bangugut. Now, did they have some sort of background of trauma, emotional trauma? Um, no, not all of them. No. And um, at first they thought these guys, they thought they had solved this one because they discovered like half of these people had liver pancreatitis. Mm-hmm. But then the other half of the cases were identical except no liver pancreatitis. But almost all of them had had a big meal? A lot of them had, but not all of them. Yes, a lot of them had had starchy meals and also alcohol. Because I was thinking, you know, maybe the big meal, maybe they're choking in some way, or if it's some sort of like reflux that is affecting the heart, but it being like an sort of an ethnically based thing, or, you know, it, it seems to be some sort of pathology that has to do with like your ethnic background you know certain backgrounds are more likely to get certain diseases or whatever sure um gosh that's weird well do you want to know about the bangu gut please yes so filipino folklore tells of a creature a demon called a bangu gut or a body bat um that's b-a-t-i-b-a-t Okay. Batty bat. Um, These are also, by the way, both, as was kind of referenced earlier, both also words for nightmare in the Philippines. Okay. Well, body bat is the word for nightmare. I guess bangugat is kind of used for nightmare, but it more directly means rising and moaning. Like the idea of sitting half up in bed, like, oh, God. So the bangugat is very similar to creatures you're familiar with, Carrie, the 
um, succubus and the incubus. Are you calling me a succubus? No, <laughs> but you can sit on my chest while I sleep anytime. What does that mean? Sorry about that, listeners. <laughs> um, night hags are a similar kind of... Um, are you calling me a night hag? Americanized... For, now I am, yes. <gasps> um, an Americanized version of the incubus or succubus. Um, this is a similar concept. The Bangugat looks like a very old, very fat woman. A big, heavy, like rotted... When you see pictures, they're a always... A grotesque woman. A grotesque woman, like I always yell at you for saying about that ghost. Yeah. <laughs> Um, In our library presentations, of course. It's got like the bloated look of corpse skin whenever people draw this. It's like a, like a, like snow white bloated skin. Mm. Um, big, corpulent female spirit. Kind of like in scary, eh, scary stories to tell in the dark. There's like that big, lumbering, corpulent, ghosty, weird thing. Yeah, it's exactly it. Mm. This one's very female. And I guess she lives in trees. It's a boy. <laughs> I'll swallow your soul. I'll swallow your soul. <laughs> That's how I picture her is um, Evil Dead, the, mm. the lady in the cellar. Mm -hmm. So according to legend, the Bangugat lives in trees, like in the trunks of trees, in spirit form. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the trouble is these trees get cut down and made into the support beams in homes. And the Bangugat comes right along with so her. So it's haunting the beams. The beam, the specific beam. And she has a, a strong, she really doesn't like people, but she's kind of, she'll, you know, she's not going to do anything unless you try to sleep near her post. Same. If you try to sleep near her home, the Bangugat is very protective and she will attack you in her sleep. Now, if you're sleeping inside the house... Yeah, that's how you would get close to the post. Like, whoever's sleeping yeah. closest to this beam, this column that has the Bangugat living in it. Oh, in her home, which is in the post, I see. Which is your home that somebody built with her tree. I mean, I get it. I'm very protective of this house. So at this point, the Bangugat will reveal her grotesque physical form and sit on the face or chest of the victim, both suffocating them and giving them horrible... She, like, casts a spell and also gives you horrible nightmares at the same time. Yuck. Now, it, do you know where the word nightmare comes from? Germany. Well, um, yeah. I mean, sort of... Uh, it, it's been pointed to, like, Holland, Germany... It's like um, Nachtmer. Yeah, exactly. And a mare is a creature from Scandinavian folklore. It and is also, like... A horse. Yes, but this is different. <laughs> yes. This is a cursed woman who, against her will, in her sleep, her body is mysteriously picked up and carried around from place to place, uh, and, and then where it presses itself on villagers' chests and causes bad dreams. And she's not meaning this. She's just floating around. It's just happening. Okay. And as you probably know, I mean, incubus, succubus, night hags, these all do the same thing. People uh, w wake up, find themselves unable to sit up or move. Or Which we now know is sleep paralysis. Right. I've had it once. Have you ever experienced it? Never. But I looked up some, uh, some statistics, Carrie. 8 to 50% of people will, at some point in their life, suffer sleep paralysis. It's some terrifying. It's really terrifying. 
Um, and 5% of people are unlucky enough to suffer it regularly. I couldn't imagine. I've only experienced it the one time and it was so horrible because I, I understand where a lot of the folklore about, you know, these creatures sitting on your chest and like, like be, you know, being frightened by them. Because when it happened to me, it was like the morning, so it was full daylight in my room, but I couldn't breathe really. I felt like I was being crushed into the bed. I was laying on my stomach, so I, I couldn't move from my chest. And it felt like something was on top of me. And then you you get like this really terrified feeling of like not being alone and like you can't move. So I totally understand where, you know, the succubi, incubi kind of folklore comes from because that was something that needed an explanation because it didn't happen to everyone very often, if ever. So when it did, they had to explain it somehow. And that's what mythology does. Absolutely. And that's also why there's a version of this story from every part of the globe. You know, the incubus, the succubus, the night hag, the mare, the bangu The Batman, Wolfman, Frankenstein, or Dracula. Um, but sleep paralysis, basically, are you going to go into the science of it? Yeah, it, okay. it is It is where you wake up and you're Your unable, mind is awake. Your eyes open, you're awake, but you're the rest of your motor reflexes haven't quite caught up and kicked in yet. So for a period of time, you are unable to sit up or move or speak. And um, maybe it's because of the distressed mind state that that obviously immediately throws you into. But this often comes with hallucinations of noises or images. People see dark figures or hear whispering voices or humming or static. Um, sometimes, even often, a feeling of pressure on the chest is reported. Um, maybe that's because, well, I can't, what's keeping me down? Yeah. I can't sit up. Um, well, because it feels like you've been paralyzed. You know, it is paralysis because you just wake up and you can't move your body. And that's so terrifying. Um, and yeah, I've experienced more than the one time of sleep paralysis. I have experienced like, not night terrors, but like weird sort of semi-conscious hallucinations i guess because i have my sleep's all messed up so sometimes that happens and that's ever since your parents burned that guy on elm street right we don't like to talk about that oh, Fred. <laughs> um and that's really scary too because you can totally like sort of hallucinate that you see someone in your room or whatever and they're not there but i i knew someone whose brother had severe night terrors and some of the things that he would say um, that he would see every night were horrible. Like one was he saw Jesus being crucified on his wall across from his bed. And it was like it was happening in the room. Wow. It's just I I can't imagine that. I mean, the, the things that people must go through that deal with those things. I, I don't know. I don't know how you'd stay sane. And if you don't know sleep paralysis is a thing, there's no other conclusion, but I'm crazy or ghosts are real. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or there's something like super wrong with my body and I'm sick and I'm about to die. Right. Or that. <laughs> which is also terrifying. But so that's the Bangungat, which is a, mm. it's a Filipino f piece of folklore. But there's a lot in different kinds of uh, societies because everyone had to explain this at some point. 
Yes, that's exactly right. Um, now, I'm not a scholar of Hmong cultural and religious practice. I don't know if I need to tell you that. Sean McCabe's not a Hmong scholar? And actually, there's few non-natives who are. The Hmong language wasn't even written down. It didn't have a script until the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So, um, this is just a, like a, like a group of people that not many people outside of their group know that much about. But But also, you know, spoken folklore must be even more important and prevalent with them because that's how they communicate. Everything is through the spoken word. That's, uh, you would imagine that to be true. And from what I understand, many of these people who were fleeing Lao in the 70s felt like they had been separated from their religious practice. They weren't, you know, whatever your equivalent of the local priest isn't here. You don't have the, the local temple. Um, your, maybe you left your village spirits back at home and you can't really, you don't have their protection anymore. They felt like they had interrupted their normal course of worship and maybe didn't have the full backing and protection of their ancestors and their spirit kind of guardians anymore. I mean, it really makes you think of your privilege just because it's like when we think of leaving our village spirits back home, it's like, oh, no, we didn't bring our four pack of IPA with us on this trip. And there's no good breweries to hit, you know, just the kinds of concerns and fears that a lot of these people must face is something that you or I could never even comprehend. Well, without the protection of those friendly spirits, and I hope I'm not imposing a belief that wasn't there but this is my understanding Mm -hmm. without the protection of those friendly spirits you might be more open to attack from other kinds of spirits or at least feel you are like for example the da chua Mm -hmm. which is a um that's in the hemong uh kind of folklore but it is a jealous often corpulent female spirit that sits on people's chests or stomachs, suffocating them in their sleep and giving them nightmares. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it makes sense that these people would be especially afraid of attacks from uh, that kind of an entity. But again, people don't die from sleep paralysis, Carrie. Right. Broadly speaking, they don't. Well, I mean, and even in similar focus groups like let's say you took a a group of people that had been imprisoned in concentration camps in world war ii the same thing's not happening to them yes it's not just everyone who's experienced horrible trauma and now has nightmares right it's not everyone whose religious practice has been interrupted right um so to tie this all back around and maybe maybe make it a little mundane and boring When young people, especially young men, die of a sudden cardiac arrest, it's very, very often because their heart has an arrhythmia in it. Mm -hmm. And that's why the proper medical term for this condition that we've been talking about this whole time, which isn't super well understood and is pretty rare, thankfully, is called sudden arrhythmic death syndrome, or SAD, or SADS. Mm -hmm. And it is SAD, Carrie. (laughs) Yes, it is. And it just so happens that a genetic condition known for causing arrhythmias in young men is especially prevalent in Asian bloodlines, and especially those from Japan and Southeast Asia. Oh. It's called Brugada syndrome. And um, if this means anything to you, it's a disorder of the ion channels that interrupts the heart's electrical patterns. And... uh, Ah, yes, the ion channels. 
And so that can potentially create an arrhythmia. The, the only way to foolproof protect against this, if you do have a family history for it, is to have uh, an installed like internal um, defibrillator that will shock you back to life if your heart stops in your sleep. I think you forgot you weren't talking to your sister for a second. I'm a film major. Well, you know what a defibrillator is. It's yes, thing I know. I know. When you're like the ions in the heart channel. <laughs> Fucking okay. Um, no, but that's what that's but that's what this that's what almost all of these deaths likely uh, were yeah. due to is Brugada syndrome. Wow. And so, and so because they had this trauma, it didn't make them more likely to die, but it certainly gave them terrible things to dream about, which might have triggered this arrhythmia causing their deaths it also gathered all these people who might not there might not have been super comprehensive health records or certainly one big government body looking at these people's health records as a whole Mm -hmm. until they came to the u.s and then all of a sudden people notice it was there something in this syndrome that made it more likely to cause an arrhythmia or whatever during sleep oh yeah this very very often happens um with the Brugada syndrome arrhythmias specifically, the, the heart attack usually happens when you're sleeping or at rest. Okay. Because, uh, yeah, I was wondering just because, you know, why wouldn't they just suffer this heart attack when they were actually experiencing whatever they were dreaming about or thinking about? Yeah. No, it actually doesn't have to do with, I don't think it has to do with the trauma. Although, I mean, any, we could talk all day about how trauma, um, we couldn't, someone could talk about how <laughs> trauma impacts your, your heart and your, your, uh, your health for years to come. But, well, could it just have made their hearts so much weaker that if you had a terrifying dream, I mean, you know, you wake up with your heart racing and in in any nightmare. So like maybe it could have just triggered this to happen. Yeah, it it seems like the the way this particular kind of cardiac arrest works is it, it's actually more likely to happen if your heart's not pumping super fast. So it's at rest. It like gets relaxed and it's like, all right, we got this. That's interesting. And then it doesn't have it. Because I mean, these people were clearly dreaming at the time or or often they were because witnesses said that they were moving and groaning and reacting to things in their sleep. Well, they were reacting to potentially getting less oxygen to their brain. Well, that too. Reacting to the effects of a heart attack. And also the act of like laying on your back changes how your blood's flowing and all that vassal vagal stuff yeah you've got that you get up and just fall (laughs) not often like once a year if that you're acting like i'm a freaking weeble (laughs) no they wobble they don't fall down (laughs) you get up and you just fall every time i just fall i collapse Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope I didn't bring that to too mundane a conclusion, Carrie. I think it was an interesting story. No, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I figured it had to be sort of a, an ethnically based thing, but it was interesting figuring out why it was more men. Because it didn't seem like it was 100% men, but that was the prominent thing. Yeah, it's a lot of men, but that's true of heart disease generally. Mm-hmm. Um. So on a more fun topic, Carrie, how, w- how would you rate those? Uh, every, how would you rank those Nightmare on Elm Street movies? Let's tie it back. Hmm. Oh gosh. Uh, one, obviously. Three. 
Oh, it's so hard. I'm trying to think of like how to rank in New Nightmare. Yep. Just because it's so different. I think just because of the the quality of the filmmaking, I'm going to put it after three. It's not very scary. No. Well, that was the thing. There's not a ton of kills and it's not super scary, but the filmmaking is really good. You know what I felt like while we were watching it? You could watch that with a kid. You could watch that with a with a 12-year-old kid. There, there's really... Yeah, not, not a much, child, but a kid. There's not much that earns the R rating. Yeah. Then four, five... Oh, mm. four, Freddy versus Jason, five. Very astute. Um, I'm going to throw two in there for camp factor. Then six. And I'm not making the remake part of it because I want you to watch it and see what you think. And also a remake, it's not the same in, in rankings. Was five the one with the motorcycle kill and the kid getting cut up in, in the comic book? Yeah. I think it's... There's creativity there. And the video game kill was just so much lamer to me than the comic book kill. Mm-hmm. They were both lame, but... <laughs> I think three and four are good enough that if you haven't watched this series, I, I need to call out how good they are. But it is one, then three, then four for me. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 not as far off as you would think. Like like three and four are really fun. Four is a weird movie. Yeah. Um, and then I think I also probably have to put in, I have to put in seven because the other three I don't. Seven? Yeah, New Nightmare. New Nightmare. And then the I think I go two before five and six. Okay. Um, and you know what's interesting? I th- No, never mind. I, I was about to say I think six might be more memorable, but that's not true. The kills might be more memorable, but uh, five has all of that weird gothic castle, yeah. dream child, souls in the chest. And again, I think the character and the actress for Alice is is good, and it's a kind of a through line from... The fourth one, and so just kind of based on that alone, really, and also some of the imagination behind it, I think it gets in there. Excellent. And uh, the the just just for kicks, the three slasher franchises I know, but for our listeners, how do you rank those? Oh, um, Halloween number one, Nightmare number two, uh, Friday the Thirteenth number three. I've never liked the Friday the Thirteenth movies, so yeah great <laughs> even even the first one i don't really like so yeah i think i'm gonna give it to nightmare for the old effects yeah the well old... you you love all that weird cosmic horror kind of vibe i love all those i mean they just put a hose of blood on sometimes in those things yeah but i think you know just in terms of quality like halloween is the greatest horror movie ever made so it's like the godfather of horror movies it, it actually is well aliens the godfather of horror movies but halloween's a, a great film and then i think all the sequels might betray its premise more more so than the other uh franchises but that's not the original's fault no but i asked you what your favorite franchise was 24 hours ago i found out the person that i'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man that is my sister emma Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing she'd invested three hundred thousand dollars with him However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. 
Coming up in this series, Annette's been murder. All this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. I said what I said. No official news, but we're going to do our second part of a little Halloween roundup. Now we're going to talk about our post-Halloween vibes and or malaise. Yes, uh, Carrie, you're the one with the malaise. Why don't you... Uh... Why don't you start? Well, we had a, a very successful Halloween party here on uh, Saturday. We did. I, I'm sure everyone's just <laughs> clamoring to hear about this. But yeah, it was really exciting. It was kind of functioning as our housewarming for a lot of our friends. And it was really cool to um, have everyone together, you know, as carefully as we can in, in these trying times. But this was the first time we were really able to do something like this. I mean, aside from our wedding, but like, uh, you know, house party uh, since COVID. So it was, it was nice. Yeah. Um, I think it was the best one we've had yet. And at three in the morning, friends were still watching uh, Jason takes Manhattan in the garage. So yeah, yeah, it was good. Um, we had some great costumes uh, no, I'm not talking about art. I mean, I think ours were great. But like, uh, we had a lot of people dress. We had a couple of Oppenheimers in the house and a Barbie in there. Um, we had Jurassic Park. Um, what's his name? Alan and Laura Dern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever her name Alan is. Alan and Laura Dern, of course. <laughs> Alan and Laura Dern. Um, we had Orville Peck. Uh, someone dresses Orville Peck, which I wish, I think it would have gotten more votes for best male costume if people, more people knew the reference. Yeah, it's pretty obscure. Because Orville Peck's kind of a niche artist, but oh, my friend Pane really nailed it. At a gayer party, he would have won. (laughs) That's true. Um, we had Medusa, we had a couple of folks from Kim Possible. Uh, oh, we had so many good costumes. And then we were Bonnie and Clyde. Postmortem. Well, of course, you have to get some makeup in there or else we're just people in gangster outfits. I, I would have been fine with that. <laughs> and Poe was a little money bag. He was running around in a little burlap sack, which was very cute. Yep, for us, not for him. Mm-hmm. My parents dressed up. They came and they were a, a player and a coach for the Jets, respectively. So, whew. Scariest thing. Scary, scary. Um, and it was it was a great time. We had a full moon on the party evening, which was very nice. And it was a, it was a historically hot day. So what's scarier than climate change? <laughs> and yeah, we've been watching a lot of movies, as we mentioned. What, what do you think was your favorite new film that you saw this October during our, our whole tear through a bunch of horror movies? I think my favorite movie I hadn't seen before was probably Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. Wow, so you really liked that one, huh? 
Well, I'd seen the Dream Warriors before, and I'd seen the first one, and yeah. uh, that was the other one that I really liked. Yeah, yeah, and the one with the most connection to the other ones. And then the other things we've watched have mostly been old favorites or, like, real schlock, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of the, the name of the game for Halloween time. I'm not complaining. Yeah, and I don't think we're going to stop our horror movie tear at all. I don't want to. It reminds me of my old middle school days. But uh, I do have to sadly say that we only got like six trick-or-treaters. Just two, two rings of the old doorbell. Um, I think the second group was like, I think we had seven trick-or-treaters. I think it was two brothers <laughs> and then a group of five. You're very sweet trying to, to comfort me there. Uh, I wish we had more because I had so many candies and Pokemon cards to give out. Um, we didn't, we didn't get any trick-or-treaters until the teenage wave. So the first one came to the door, like they just held out their sacks and I was like, well, you gotta say it guys. Uh, I was like, yeah, you were one of those. Uh, and they were like, yeah, trick-or-treat man. It's <laughs> like, oh yeah. Hey, if, as long as you're dressed up, I don't care how old you are, you're getting some candy. Well, and then those other teenagers who came, uh, said, are those Pokemon cards? And I said, yeah, you want some? They'd already taken their full size candy bars. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the girls said, oh, you guys are goaded for this. I I think I'm going to put that in my resume that I have been called goaded by a teenager. There's something that makes me feel very old uh, about the fact that being called cool in a way by a young high schooler was like, ooh, I am cool. And then they were this like, this is what I wanted all those years ago. And then they were like, great house, too. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's haunted. No reaction. Well, Just I think they could have assumed that by the exterior. <laughs> but it was a good time. And, you know, we'll, we still have some autumn activities to do. We'll, we'll go over to Salem soon and do our Salem things. Mm-hmm. See yeah, our with, Salem friends. Yeah, once the crowds are out. Yes. And, um, yeah, and hopefully the, the leaves stick around a little longer. I think they're just starting to really fall from the trees so we can enjoy the nice colors for a bit longer. And um, yeah. This is a cry for help from Carrie, guys. She's She doesn't know what to do with Halloween behind us. Send her spooky vibes, please. Send me spooky vibes. I'm going to go with my light therapy lamp and just uh, curl up in a ball <laughs> with Poe and stare at my fake lamp. <laughs> um it's, you know, it's always a bummer when it ends, just because I love when the world kind of catches up to me a little bit, at least for a month. But uh, the spookiness can never truly leave as long as it's part of your soul. I just told you, no one's making us take those, you know, pumpkins and spiderwebs down. Yeah. Well, at least inside. We have an HOA, so... That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. Thank you to everyone who has called or shared their favorite moments from the last 50 episodes or so. We're going to be compiling those 
shortly. So um, if we didn't play your message or whatever right now, that's going to be for that episode. So thank you for calling in and uh, throwing us a line. If you would like to contribute to our compilation of year three, just, uh, yeah, call us, leave us a message, send us a message, etc. Please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will be forever grateful. And special thanks to those of you who are already part of our spooky family over there on Patreon. Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, Ira, and our newest Scary Squad members, Pete and Anna. Welcome to Elm Street, bitch. <laughs> See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.